they came to Jericho. As he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, Call him here. They called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. So throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, My teacher, let me see again. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. A couple of weeks ago, Gail and I drove down to Texas for my brother's big day. As we drove back, I was thinking about the next morning's sermon, but I also knew that today we were going to be dealing with this passage. Suppose we had agreed that at McAllister... We would leave our car at the toll booth there and walk the rest of the way. It's 90 miles. 90 miles, about the distance from Capernaum on the northernmost shore of the Sea of Galilee down to Jericho and Jerusalem. Suppose we had walked all that way, 75 miles of it, and had finally come to Glenpool. The disciples have all gotten very quiet. They're frightened. And suddenly someone's screaming out, Son of David! Others are telling him, Be quiet. He just cries out all the louder. Jesus is now 17 miles from Jerusalem. 17 miles up a winding road. In elevation, they would climb more than one mile in that 17. Jericho, the lowest place on the planet Earth because of the great tectonic plates that come together and force down at the Jordan River, 17 miles up, one mile in elevation to Jerusalem. After this story today, the very next is Palm Sunday. Jesus riding the little burro down the winding path into the city. Let's take a look. Number one, son of David, son of David. In all of Mark's gospel, this is the only time Jesus is ever referred to as son of David. Because now Mark is trying to help you and me understand that we've got a big decision to make. Is Jesus of Nazareth, in fact, a descendant of King David, and is he establishing his kingdom? What will it look like? Dr. Brandon Scott's latest book, Reimagining the Kingdom. What would that be? What is he trying to tell us about the kingdom? What would it look like? What would it look like? Blind Bartimaeus cannot see. He can hear. He can hear the shuffling of lots of feet. There was a crowd, Mark says, now moving along with Jesus. And suddenly he hears someone say, Jesus of Nazareth, son of David, he says. About this time last year, I remember telling you a little bit about John Updike, who had died just weeks before. 
John Updike was one of the honorees at the Peggy Helmerich Library Author of the Year Award a few years ago. I don't think Gail and I have missed any of those in all the years that award's been given, and occasionally I'm asked to say the invocation I was that year. People don't usually comment about invocations, no matter how long you spend on them, no matter how much time and energy you put into them. Most people don't comment. That night, after we had dinner, after the award had been presented, after Mr. Updike had responded and everybody was told, have a safe trip home, he walked over and spoke to me. He said, I really appreciated your prayer. I used to be a Methodist. I hate that. I hate that when people say, I used to be a Methodist. Well, what happened to you? I said. And he smiled. He said, I grew up in the Lutheran church. After college, when I was out on my own and left Pennsylvania, I became a Methodist. Then I married an Episcopalian. It seemed more important to her to go to her church than it did to me to go to mine, so I became an Episcopalian. I really appreciated your prayer. I said, thank you very much. Well, a year after his death, Pennsylvania decided to have a John Updike weekend. Reading, Pennsylvania. Those of you who've read his books about rabbit know that he calls it Brewer, Brewer, Pennsylvania. But he doesn't disguise Reading very much. He even gives you the exact name of the hospital, some of the places in town, some of the people in town. You can make out very clearly if you know Reading, Pennsylvania. He grew up in a little community, suburb called Shillington and then Plowville, but Reading, Pennsylvania is the town. During the weekend that people who loved his writings had come to see and hear and tell stories, the present pastor of the church, where John Updike's mother and father were buried, where his cremains were taken as well, said, John Updike was such a kind and gracious man. He wrote to me after he was diagnosed with prostatic cancer and said, I will be forever grateful for the church you now pastor. I thank God for my baptism, for my confirmation, for those beautiful stained glass windows. When I was a boy growing up, every Sunday I sat there and looked at those magnificent windows. They were the gates to paradise. Jesus is passing by. Passing by, can he help you? Do you see in him the Messiah? Number two, Jesus heard this commotion. Mark says he stopped stood still and said, call him. So those who had been telling the man to be quiet said, okay, he's heard you, he's calling for you. And it says he sprang up and left his cloak and rushed to Jesus. Ten days ago, Gail and I went to the first opera of the season here in Tulsa. We have a very fine opera company here. Scott Philstrup and others have given much time and energy and money through the years to help make it so. Just the set for La Traviata and the costumes were so wonderful. When the curtain went up, people applauded the set and the costumes before anyone had sung a note. 
I was reading in the Wall Street Journal that this year's opera at the Met in New York is Boris Godunov. Gee, that's a name from my long-ago past. I was a history major in college, in undergraduate school. I was in college in the depths of the Cold War. I was in undergraduate school during the Cuban Missile Crisis. I was studying Russian history. My professor, Dr. Bruno Strauss, a German Jew who had been dismissed from his job as a professor at the University of Berlin just because he was a Jew, his wife the same. They saw things getting worse and worse, spent everything they had being smuggled out of Germany with their young boy, eventually ending up at a Methodist college in Shreveport, Louisiana, Centenary, teaching German, teaching history. Dr. Strauss had grown up just a few miles from the Russian border. He was teaching Russian history. In the depths of the Cold War, he said, let me give you one thing to make you lie awake at night. What is the favorite pastime in America? At that time, it was considered baseball. What is it in Russia? Chess, he said, chess. Never make a move that you don't know what you're going to do three or four moves down the road. Boris Goodenough, ah, yes. 1598, long time ago, Boris Goodenough became the Tsar of Russia. Tsar, you know, is just a Russian word for Caesar, as in Rome, a king. The Russian Tsar, the person who was supposed to ascend the throne, had been murdered. Pushkin would later write a play saying it was Boris Goodenough who murdered him, and that play became an opera in time. Boris Gudinov, who perhaps killed the person who was supposed to be czar so that he could be czar. But after only a few years, there were three who joined forces against him. One of them claimed to be Dmitri, the man murdered. He wasn't, of course. Dmitri really was murdered. But there was no television in those days, no newspapers on every corner, no photographs that people knew. So when this person said he was Dimitri, he wasn't dead, some believed. Many believed. One was a Catholic monk who was trying to bring Roman Catholicism in to displace Russian Orthodoxy. These three plotting against Boris Gudinov and the armies that once had fought for him and wiped out the family of Dmitri now threatened to wipe out his family as well. And he was really sorry for that. He loved his little children. Well, you can see how this would become an opera. Yeah, lots of intrigue, lots of anguish. When the opera is staged, right down stage right is a huge book so that you can see it all the time. And there's a monk sitting there, slowly turning the pages, writing Russian history. Another coup, another family decimated. Another coup, another family decimated. Boris goes to the church to pray for his little children and is told that God does not listen to the prayers of murderers. The anguishes. The reviewer of the present production in New York headlined her column, When Remorse is Not Good Enough. 
Just being sorry is not good enough. I've told you the Hebrew word for repentance is not so much about being sorry as it is about turning or returning. Now that you've sprung up and rushed to Jesus, are you willing to have him turn you so that you return to the one who created you? Number three, Jesus knows the man's blind, but he still asks him, what may I do for you? What do you want me to do for you? My teacher, he said. As far as we know, he'd never met Jesus in his life. Mark says this was Jesus' only trip to Jerusalem that he tells about in his gospel. But he's saying, you become my teacher, my teacher. I want to see again. You and I have been through the throes of a major financial disruption the last two years. The worst two years our church has had in my 30 were the two immediately following 9-11. That was a major disruption. The tech crash was another major disruption. But these are not new, of course. All history majors know these are not new. In our country, between 1850 and 1900, one 50-year period, we had four major financial panics. A lot of artists were painting during that period, and some of them were painting the rich and famous, but others were painting those who were most impacted during those four panics. And recently, some of those paintings, 150 years old, were brought together in Philadelphia, their museum. One of them is called Tattered and Torn. She's an old African-American woman. In fact, you can see from her clothing, she is tattered and torn. Between two fingers, she has a cigarette, and in her other hand, a match probably the last few pennies she has, she's going to smoke away. One's called Buy a Posy. It's a little girl, sad, thin, circles under the eyes, trying to sell flowers on a street corner, and nobody's buying. One is of a little boy, the weary newsboy, it says, Sort of looks like the little girl, two different artists. He's too little to be selling newspapers, dark circles under the eyes, thin, thin little arms and legs, a stack of papers on the corner, and nobody's buying a paper. And the last one is called the match seller, back at a time when most people lit a fire in the fireplace, cooked with a wood-burning stove, little boxes of matches, a penny, a penny, a penny. Nobody's buying. America, nine days before you vote, what do you really want me to do for you? Oklahoma, Tulsa, Boston Avenue Church, each of you individually, what do you really want me to do for you?
Number four, Jesus says, your faith has made you well. This word in Greek for made well can also mean has saved you. Your faith has saved you. Immediately the man could see, Mark says, and he followed Jesus on the way. He followed Jesus on the way. Next Sunday we're going to talk about that way. What, what is that way? What is the greatest commandment? What is the second greatest as Jesus saw them? But for today, followed him on the way, the right way, the good way, as we are downtown for good. Last Wednesday, I was making our hospital rounds, as I usually do on Wednesday. And between hospitals, I did a double take when I suddenly saw this huge, very pink fire truck. Have you seen it? There is a huge, very pink fire truck running around Tulsa, Oklahoma. Thursday at staff meeting, I asked the staff, you know, I've heard of, you know, Susan G. Coleman, walk for the cure, run for the cure, and so on. I can't believe how much pink I'm seeing. I watched a football game on television. The referees had pink whistles. I saw professional tackles that weighed 350 pounds wearing pink gloves. I know this has been going on three, four, five years. I asked the staff, what is this really all about? I didn't have any idea who Susan G. Coleman was. Well, you can Google most anything now. Ask, who was Susan G. Coleman? You know how long this pink campaign's been going on? 30 years. Susan died in 1980, 30 years ago. She was 37. She was diagnosed with breast cancer when she was 34. We didn't know nearly as much about dealing with breast cancer in 1977 as we do today. She had terrible surgery. She had radiation. She had chemotherapy, lost all her hair, was dying. And she said to her sister, three years younger, named Nancy, as she squeezed her hand, promise me, promise me you will do something to keep other women from having to go through what I'm going through. And Nancy said, I promise Nancy's now written their story, and she says, you know, this really began for us when we were little bitty girls. When Susan was eight and I was five, I have a picture of that. I have an eight-year-old granddaughter. I have a five-year-old granddaughter. So I'm imagining these two living at a time when the big fear in this country was polio. Polio, infantile paralysis. Public swimming pools were closed down because health officials were afraid maybe this disease was being communicated from one to the other in swimming pools where people were in mixed bathing. Frantically, people were looking. You could go to the movie theater and they had one of those big iron lungs, they called them, thumping away in the, in the lobby of the movie theater so you'd give a few dimes when you bought some popcorn. Nancy said their mother set them down and said, you got to do something about this. They're eight and five. 
You've got to do something about this. You live in the most wonderful country in the world. People have died for this country. When there's a person who needs, you give. When there's a problem to be solved, you solve it. When there's a question to be answered, you answer it. You must learn to be good stewards. Do you understand me? Susan, will you be a good steward? And she said, I will. Nancy, will you be a good steward? She says, it was five. I wasn't sure what being a good steward meant. But Susan whacked me in the ribs and said, just say it. And I said, I will be a good steward. And presto, pink fire trucks. Amen.